Lord God, we thank you for the word that you have given us, whose sole purpose has been to reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as he sits on your thr- at your right hand of your throne, with all things at his feet, and as he continues to build his church and gather people to himself, we recognize, Lord God, that we are the products of his love and of his mercy and of your love and mercy toward us. And so, Lord, as we continue to look at what it means to come together as a gathered community, as a family of God, we pray that you would continue to deepen and broaden our understanding of the importance of it is for us to meet and to gather and to be a part of each other's lives in very significant ways. We ask all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. So, as I mentioned in the prayer, we are working through a series on what it means for us to gather as a church. We combined the two sites, and um, we just wanted to spend some time reflecting on why we meet in the ways that we do meet. And so, obviously, we have been meeting as house churches, and we've been meeting on Sunday mornings. And so, we really wanted to see a greater uh, understanding and emphasis of, of why we were meeting, particularly here on Sunday mornings. And today we're going to look at, um, today we're going to look at the John, the Gospel of John's version of the Lord's Supper. And so we looked at Passover, which was kind of the, the uh, early vision for what became known as the Lord's Supper. And we're familiar with the Lord's Supper stories, uh, where Jesus hands out the bread and the cup and says, uh, this is my flesh and this is my blood. And, and we're going to look at John's today because in John's version of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is doing some things to teach them um, lessons on what it means to be a part of a community in, in roles of leadership, but also roles in um, what it means to follow and what it means to serve. And so Jesus is giving us these examples. And we see in the gathering of his disciples, we see models of leadership. And so I want to look at today just um, a chart here that I put together. We can see models of leadership in our culture that are very obviously flawed. And I think that there are two, and there are all kinds of models of leadership. If you look in the, just Google leadership models, uh, get books on leadership for business, all kinds of different leadership books. I I think you can see um, two dominant flawed ways of leadership. And the first one and, and I'm not going to mention any specific names or political parties or political or civic entities. I think we can all put the descriptions with the faces um, and, and names and entities. But I think we have a, a dominating leadership, what Jesus would have called lording over leadership. Um, and then we also would have what I call leaderless leadership. And I couldn't find an actual term for this, and I didn't want to use the term political leadership, because I didn't think that communicated the idea, but I think that this is a leadership style that doesn't lead. It kind of runs leadership in the organizations or whatever they are responsible for, 
they run it by the polls. And so whatever the people want, the people get, and they're going to lead in, in making things happen that the people want. Whereas the dominating leadership, uh, the, the people or the person in leadership has a, has a very clear vision of where they want to go. Um, and they just uh, will go that way regardless of what the people want. All right. So I think that there are some characteristics of these two leadership styles that are in really stark contrast to Jesus's. And we're going to look and we're going to put a Jesus column up there uh, later after we work through the passage. But I think in dominating, so if we look at the, the idea of authority, and we're going to see all these ideas in this passage today. If we look at the idea of authority, dominating leadership sees authority as something to take and grab hold of. I want power, I'm going to get it and I'm going to take it. Leaderless leadership, um, authority is something that you receive, that you receive from others, okay, other people in specific, to be specific. Uh, the purpose of dominating leadership is for personal gain, and I think the purpose of what, again, I call leaders, leaderless leadership is positional identity. They want to be in a place of power, and so they want the people to put them there, and they just like being in that place of power. They like having the identity of power. People. Dominators use people as a means to fulfill their personal gain, their selfish ambition, uh, whereas leaderless leadership, they use people as a means to get their position. Power, dominate, dominating leadership uses power, uh, and it's, it's forceful, it's aggressive, it's controlling. Um, whereas leaders, leaderless leadership uses power to appease others. And under dominating leadership, the poor, the weak, and the oppressed are marginal, marginalized. And under leaderless leadership, the poor, weak, and oppressed are exploited. And so I think we see these um, very prominent, especially in our political spheres. I think that they're common when there's an absence of, of what is true and good authority. I think that they are common when we are in times of, of chaos and, and fear and uh, where there's kind of like leadership vacuums and, and there is desperation. We're going to see that, that true leadership and true authority is going to be modeled by Jesus. And in, and in Jesus, we're also going to see uh, a model of service. Now, I'm not a big fan of the term servant leader, okay? Jesus calls us to be servants, um, and there are those who are given leadership, Okay? Uh, I'm not a big fan of that because I don't think it's very clear on what it means. I don't think it's clear on what servant leadership uh, means in the, in the term itself. But we're going to look at the model of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see leadership, and we're going to see service, okay? And we're going to look at characteristics of Jesus' leadership that may challenge us how we think about leading and also challenge us about how we think about serving. And so I want to look at the passage today is John chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 17. And we're going to go through this. And again, it's John's version of the Last Supper with the disciples. And so um, just really quick, the Passover was a, a supper that all of Israel celebrated since God 
Well, ideally, they didn't celebrate it for hundreds of years, but God gave it to them in order to celebrate their release from Egypt when they were imprisoned for 400 years. And so God performed his miracles, God sent the plagues to Egypt, God delivered Israel from Egypt, and so they had this Passover celebration. And so this, they were to take uh, a day and celebrate Passover, um, and so Jesus is celebrating Passover, and because Jesus is the final lamb of God, the final sacrificial lamb, this is the last Passover, um, technically the last Passover meal, legitimate Passover meal in history. And so Jesus has gathered his disciples. He has been ministering on earth for three years, and he has gathered his disciples. It's him and the twelve. They're in an upper room, and he's got kind of some final words for them. And so we have the text here, John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so this is the first thing that I want to draw out about Jesus' leadership. And we'll summarize it with a table here in a moment compared to those other ones. But Jesus' mission had the dominant character, in fact, I would say the singular character of love. It says here, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so love, by Jesus' definition, is that you give your life up for another, okay? No matter what Jesus says, there's no greater love than when a, when a person lays down his life for a friend, okay? So love defined by Jesus is your life is given for the benefit of others, okay? Let me continue. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And so here we see the basis of Jesus' authority. See, the dominator grabs and takes authority by power. This is a, a tyrant, okay? The leaderless leadership, they believe that power comes from the people, okay? The, the tyrant sees it within himself or herself, and they take it. Others get it because they think people have the power to give them. Biblical, an understanding of biblical authority is a recognition that all authority rests in the hands of God, and it is God who gives authority. It is God who puts people, all of us, into the positions that we are in to steward his creation. We are his creation. This world is his creation. The nations are his creation, okay? Governments with the authorities that they have, the scriptures teach that it is, it is God who gives authority to people in order to steward what is his, okay? So Jesus understood that. So the text is, is positioning the statement about Judas as a betrayer Jesus knowing about the betrayer, but, but Jesus' strength, okay, even in the midst of being betrayed, Jesus knows that the betrayer 
is following um, the Scripture's plan for him, God's plan for him. And so Jesus, in the midst of being betrayed, knows that all things are in the hands of God and knows that his plans aren't going to be thwarted in the midst of a betrayer. I'm watching this series uh, called Turn right now. Turn, Washington Spies. It's an AMC Netflix. Anybody else watching it? Uh, it's a great uh, Revolutionary War historical fiction, but all the names so far that I've looked into are all real people. Anyway, the whole, the whole show is about betrayal and traitors and spies and things like this, and people's plans are getting foiled. The British plans are getting foiled by the by the uh, continental spies, and the continental's plans are getting foiled by the British spies. But here you see Jesus and the plans of God with the authority and the power of God. Uh, there's no concern in Jesus' mind about a betrayer that he knows is in his midst. He knows that the plans aren't going to be foiled. He laid aside his outer garments. And this is... It's, this. He's doing something here that's just going to completely blow the minds of the disciples. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And so here, here is, I mean, Jesus is doing a couple things here in this act of service in washing the feet of his disciples. The first, and I think probably the more obvious thing, is that he is taking what would normally be a servant's task, and he's Lord. He is the fullness and embodiment of authority in heaven and on earth, so, and he is their creator. And he is entering into this role, the serving role, and putting, themselves, putting himself in a very humble position. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a, of a church or of any particular act where you were required to wash the feet of others. Okay, it is a very humbling thing to do. So there's a, 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 an association of churches called the Grace Brethren Churches, and um, uh, we have some association with the Grace Brethren, and early on, they, they required um, all their churches to participate in foot washing um, at their Lord's Supper meetings. 
right? And that's a, that's a part of what they do as a Lord's Supper. We tried it once here early on in our first years, and it was far too awkward and weird, and we said, you know, we're just not gonna do that. It doesn't, doesn't work with us. Uh, but doing it is a very, very humbling thing to do. Now, we don't need to do it because we wear shoes, and we typically don't get our feet dirty, and we have sidewalks, and we have asphalt, and so back then, everything's dirt, and so your feet were always getting dirty. And so Jesus takes this position of service, but it isn't just to show that he's humble and putting himself under the disciple, so to speak, in this servant role. The purpose for which he's doing it is of, I wouldn't say it's of greater importance than the servant role, but it is what is bringing him into the servant role. See, Jesus is using this image of the foot washing to demonstrate two things. First of all, the disciples, all of them there, needed their feet cleansed, okay? In, in reality, but also metaphorically. And the metaphor is this. As we walk with Christ, as believers in the gospel, um, we need constant cleansing, all right? And Jesus says, you have no part of me unless I can wash your feet and Peter says, well, then bathe me. And Jesus says, no, 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 I don't need to bathe you. And so the idea is this, is that once you have come to know Jesus Christ, if you've believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, he was your creator, and he made you to enjoy him and to enjoy this world and to worship him and to live life as a full human being on this earth, to, to multiply, to fill the earth, to enjoy and steward his creation, to enjoy one another, and to, and to find beauty and glory in, in life. That's what God has created us for. But we needed to recognize that God is the author and the source of life, and once we pulled away from him by pursuing other sources of life, and so our early, early ancestors... Adam and Eve in the garden decided that the serpent's words were more accurate and that life could be found from what we could gain for ourselves and we no longer needed God. And that's what brought death. And death's early, early manifestations were a sense of guilt, a sense of shame from the guilt, and a sense of fear which separated them from each other and separated from God because they went and hid they hid from themselves and they hid from God. And so that's the early manifestation of death. And eventually humans would die. God did not plan for humans to die. God did not plan for humans to get disease. God did not plan these things. Humans took it upon themselves to be the authors of life. And they really had no life to give. And so Christ, as the author of life and the creator and sustainer of all things, as the scriptures teach us, God through Christ, came to earth and died, took, took the penalty of death upon himself so that we could once again enter into life. And if you believe in that message that, that to follow God is the path back to life, the path back to full humanity, that's what it means to believe in the gospel. If you've believed in the gospel, you have life you have no need to be bathed again, okay? You have fullness of life. You're clean. 
But as we walk through life as believers in Jesus Christ, we continue to sin, right? We continue to harm ourselves. We continue to hurt each other. We continue to hurt our families. We continue to hurt the world and break laws and all sorts of things. We continue to sin. And we're becoming increasingly clean as we walk with Christ because Christ is increasingly cleansing us. And that's the metaphor he's trying to say. And so the epistles of John and later on in the, in the, in the book of John itself, it teaches essential things of what it means to go through this cleansing. It's not the foot washing. It's not the foot washing. It's a recognition of sin. It is confession. It is repentance. It is going to those whom you've harmed and confessing your sin and repenting before them. It is abiding in the word and loving one another. There, Christ has this process to continue to cleanse us. And that's what he's saying here. And he says, listen, if you want to continue to walk with me, because up to this point, Jesus has had crowds following him. When he's handing out the free food, crowds following him. When he's healing their diseases and sickness, crowds following him. But he eventually sees in John chapter 6 that the crowds are following him not because of his words, but because of his, because of his good things. And so Jesus stops doing the good things. He stops healing the sick and he stops handing out free food because he wants to see who is going to continue to follow him and the crowds start peeling away because Jesus is looking for people who are going to follow him on the basis of faith, faith in his words, not in faith in the free food and the healing of diseases, but faith in his words. That's what Jesus wants. So the time you get to John chapter 13 after Jesus has spent his three, three years here on earth, he's got 12 people following him. These 12. So it's kind of like the, the, the company of the committed, one scholar has called it. So to come into this place with Jesus in his, in his cleansing means that you've become a follower, not just one who's believed and gotten bathed. But you said, you know, I, I, I continue to need Jesus. I continue to need his forgiveness and his cleansing, and his peace, and his joy. I continue to need these things, and so I'm going to keep following him. Because as Peter said, Jesus, what else are we going to do? You have the words of life. And so that is what Jesus is showing him. So it is Jesus' mission to cleanse his disciples that brings him into a place of service. He doesn't just kind of think, hey, I need to show that I need to, to serve people. So I'm going to do something humble. No, his mission is to clean, to cleanse, to make them like him. And that's going to require him to give up his life. That's what he's showing them here. You will give up your life. You will, as, Jesus, as, as Paul says in Philippians, Jesus Christ gave up what it meant to be the Son of God, and did not consider it something to be grasped. Yes, he had that position. No, he did not hold on to it. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher 
and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If, then, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you, should, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And so if we look at a, the, uh, so if, we, if you look at kind of the, the Jesus column on the, on the right-hand side, he sees that, again, authority is not from himself. It's not from the power that people give him. His power and authority is from God. The purpose? The kingdom of God. The building of the family of God. It's a transcendent purpose. It's beyond himself. It's even beyond his people. It is something that God has willed and, and called into action and called all to serve. It is something beyond himself. People are not a means to something. People are really objects of love. The kingdom of God is the people of God. And so it is love for these people that's ultimately the mission. It is the love of God for the world that caused Jesus to give up his life. It is the love of God to draw us into the family of God so that his kingdom would be established. Power, and this is, this is a, 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 uh, a really critical idea. Power is used to direct, persuade, and serve. It's not something that we use to force something to happen, which the world does in its lording leadership. Power is not used to appease those who would vote us in or vote us out of our position. Power is used to lead, to go a direction. We as people, I mean, Jesus said, humans are like sheep without a shepherd. Right? We are not in a place of knowing what's best for us, right? And that is, that is it, we have to maintain an understanding of, of leadership in taking and leading in a direction that is beyond our capacity of, of, as humans and even as, as individuals uh, to go somewhere where we wouldn't otherwise go. That's leadership. And so Jesus is calling us to something. But he's not just calling us to it, he's leading us to it. He calls us to give our lives, it's because he's given his life. He's calling us to love one another and to sacrifice our lives for the good of one another, and he's doing it because he's leading us and asking us and calling us to that calling because he's done the same thing. And so he's pulling us into something that we wouldn't otherwise go to, and he's directing us. He's not forcing us. He's not forcing us. He's persuading. His word persuades. His spirit persuades. He's calling us to it. Yes, we're called to obey it, but we don't all obey. 
Jesus doesn't force us to obey. And this is a very important quality of, of leadership. And I think something that I have learned in my, I'm 40, I'll be 45 in, next week, actually. Um, and I wouldn't consider myself an older man. But in the last few years, this, this principle has increasingly emerged. Um, it is not my responsibility as an authority, whether it's of, of my family or staff or whatever sphere of authority I have. It is not my responsibility as the authority to force those under my authority to do what they're supposed to do. See, we can think that it is our responsibility, and, and all of you here, regardless of what life position you're in and what station you're in in life, you will have some sphere of authority most likely. You will have people that you are responsible for. But it is very important that you understand that it is not your responsibility for them to do what they're supposed to do. You direct them, you instruct them, you persuade them, you help them, but ultimately it's their responsibility before God to do what they're supposed to do. And see, for me, that has taken, it's helped me become uh, less angry when those under my authority aren't doing what I am calling them to do as authority. Because they have a responsibility before God. They're not mine. Our children are not mine. This church is not mine. It's all God's. I am in a stewardship role as a father and husband and as an elder and pastor in this church, as a stewardship role. And it is your responsibility as children, as a church, to follow God. To follow God. When you are in a sphere of being under authority, you don't, you don't follow that authority because of them. You follow that authority because God has put them there in your life, and God says for you to serve that authority as you would serve him. And so, and so leaders, people that are in a place of authority, have a lot of jobs to do to help and strengthen and move those under their authority to where they are supposed to go, but forcing them is not one of those things. We're called to serve. And Jesus protected the poor, the weak, and the oppressed and considered them equal. Jesus is, is, is a tremendous example and teacher in how we are to pre treat the poor, but he also says in Scripture, uh, do not show favoritism to the poor. Don't exploit the poor. Don't marginalize the poor. Consider them equals. Consider them equals. And so we see here Jesus modeling leadership and his leadership is, has the character of service. Has the character of service. But again, it is service for an end that has been given by God. And so how, how do we apply this? How do we apply this? Well, first of all, all of us have authority given to us by God, as I have said. And this is a, I mean, 
the scriptures are very clear. If you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have been seated with him at the right hand of the Father. All right? That is your identity and position. That is one of those things, you know, when Paul prays in his letters and Jesus prays for us, that is one of those things that, that, we, that we have to pray for to comprehend because it is mind-blowing. I am sitting at the right hand of the Father with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is far above all rule and power and authority and dominion in every name that is named. And somehow, in some way, we share in that authority. We share in that authority. And that authority gives us power. Not power to dominate. Not power to acquiesce and give in and appease. But power to endure. Power to endure. Because what Jesus is calling us to, and this is a critical part of the application, is to enter into the lives of other people in order to participate in the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. So this is the big point of the message. We gather in this assembly and in our house churches, and I would say especially in our house churches, we gather in order to participate in the work of Jesus, in the work of the Holy Spirit, in the cleansing of one another. Because that's what Jesus came to do. That's what we are called to do. So we have been given a power and an authority to enter into the dirt of our lives of each other's lives. Jesus is down on his knees and he's washing the dirt and the grime off of the feet of these men. And that, that is what Jesus has called us to do, to enter into one another's lives and cleanse the grime and the dirt, not off our feet, but off our souls and off our bodies and off our minds and off our hearts. And as all of you have known that have taken part and participated in a, in a house church and have given your lives for people, your time, your energy, your emotional strength, which for me it's probably the hardest thing to give is, is just emotional strength. Your money, all of these things. It's been for the cleansing of others. It's easy to live in isolation. That's well, not enjoyable. It's lonely. But it, it doesn't it doesn't call you into, to enter into the dirt and the grime of other people's lives, which is real hard, which is real hard to do. We have roles in our families. Parents are to be authorities over their kids. Why? To steward them, to cleanse them, so that they can follow God on their own when they become adults. There's church authorities, there's civic authorities and the civic authorities, whether they know Jesus Christ or not, God is using them to bring life and establish peace and order on this earth. There aren't very many governments that do it very well. But it, God's using them. And there are some governments that are a lot better than other governments. And some governments have become so corrupt that God uses the nations of the world to abolish them. 
It seems like it takes him a lot longer to do that than what we would like, but God has all these things in his hands. He waited 400 years for the, what, he, what the scriptures call the, the sins of the Amorites to be complete before he brought Israel in to destroy them. So God isn't as impatient as, as we are. But all of these fears that, that we're in and that we have, um, and, they're, and they're priorities. If you are a parent, you have priority to serve and nurture your children and then there's the church family, and there's the world. We have obligations. Paul says to not only love those who are in the church, but to love the world as well. So we are called to all of these spheres to give our lives. And it's literally, um, we've got to be at supper with each other. We've got to eat with each other. And the eating with each other is a, mean for, is a means for us to get into the lives of each other. That's what, that's what this whole passage is about. Get into the lives of one another and participate in the cleansing work that I am doing and in that you will find life. You will find life as you give it to each other. How do we do this? Well, the, as, as Jesus goes on, he's got a few more things to say and there are a few very critical points. One, uh, it's, it's gonna be a challenge, as I've already said. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be persecution. It's going to be hard to enter into the pain and the suffering and the, and the hardship of others. But he gives them a hope. The hope, I have gone before you and prepared a place for you. There is a, we have to have a loose hold on our home. We have to have a loose hold on what we have here on earth. As soon as we start to grasp and want to hold on to what we have on this earth, we start becoming selfish. We no longer have a, have a spirit of generosity to give and to sacrifice. So we have to keep looking towards the place that Jesus has gone before us and prepared for us. That is home. That is when we're comfortable. That is when we'll be done. That's when we can rest for good. Where we will be one with God and have all of our deeper longings fulfilled. And it's also a hope for a greater experience of love with other people. We all are going to go together into the kingdom and all of the things that we accumulate are gonna stay here. Actually, they're gonna get burned up. But we're all going together. Let's build for eternity. It's another motivation that Jesus gives them. And finally, there's a power. There's a power, and he says, you have to abide, abide in me. For without me, you can do nothing. Stay in the word, stay in prayer, because it is, it, God works through these things. And he says, continue to love one another. And if you abide in me, then his power, and you say, well, how, we, have to, we have to believe, it's still, uh, if we believe, if we believe Jesus' words to be true, just like in chapter six, the people were not believing in his words. They were getting free lunch. Stop thinking about what this is gonna do for you. Believe that his words are gonna bring you life and that following him is gonna bring you life, even though in all appearances it will not. Giving your life for the sake of other people will bring you life. If you believe that, 
it will propel you, and the spirit that lives in you will propel you into this way of service. That's how we do it. It begins with faith. Do we believe that Jesus is the path of life? If he is, we'll follow him, and he will empower us. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for calling us to be together, for calling us into community in such a way that it forces us into the dirt and grime of each other's lives. God, we thank you for that because without you compelling, leading, empowering, teaching, convicting us to do this, we would not do it. We would follow Adam and Eve. We would cover ourselves and we would run away from each other and we would run away from you. So God, we thank you that you've called us to gather, to be your family, to be brothers and sisters in you. And I pray, God, that as we continue to grow, that you would continue to deepen us in these relationships, in, our, in all of our gatherings, and that you would show us, God, where we can serve one another. Show us how you've gifted and resourced each and every one of us so that we can give it away and to strengthen others and to cleanse each other through the power of your Holy Spirit that you give us. God, we pray for all of these things in your son's name. Amen.